Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Starting today, children as young as six months old can get a COVID-19 vaccine. What are President Biden and medical experts saying about it? Voters are headed to the polls in key primary races. We'll tell you which races have the potential to impact the balance of power in D.C. The director of the Texas Department of Public Safety testified about the police response to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from ending room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander. A Virginia school board adds punishment to one section of its code of conduct. Students who maliciously misgender a child who identifies as trans can now be suspended right down to the fourth grade. A big win in the Supreme Court for parents who want to send their children to religious schools. The high court overturns a policy in Maine that bars taxpayer money from going to schools that provide religious instruction. NFL superstar Rob Gronkowski is calling it quits for the second time. We'll tell you why his agent thinks he could come back yet again. President Biden today advocating COVID vaccination for children under five. What's he saying? And what does a medical expert tell us about kids getting these shots? NTD's Iris Tao has more. Vaccines hitting the arms and legs of the nation's youngest kids. Starting Tuesday, millions of children from six months to five years old can get COVID-19 shots. Finally, some peace of mind. Visiting a vaccination clinic before giving his speech, President Biden says the day marks a historic milestone. A monumental step forward, the United States is now the first country in the world to offer safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines for children as young as six months old. Over the weekend, the CDC signed off on vaccinations for around 17 million children under five. But while reassuring the public that the vaccines are safe, White House officials acknowledge some parents remain hesitant. So we have work to do with our trusted messengers, pediatricians, um, healthcare providers, pharmacists across this country, and that hard work starts right now. Meanwhile, Biden and the White House said parents can begin scheduling appointments for the shots at children's hospitals, pediatricians' offices, and pharmacies. But not everyone agrees that vaccinating your youngest kids is a good idea. As a mother and as a physician, these uh, vaccines are truly all risk and no benefit. Dr. Kat Lindley tells NTD the kids' recovery rate from COVID is extremely high, yet the current vaccines are lacking support from long-term data. We have no long-term safety data. There are studies that show that lipid nanoparticle accumulates in the ovaries. What does that mean for little girls who are going to get vaccine now and 15, 20 years from now they're going to have a child? We have no clue. Meanwhile, Biden is asking for more money to fund the vaccination campaign, citing a need to plan for a second pandemic. There's going to be another pandemic. We have to think ahead. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And in election news, heated primary races are happening today in Alabama, Georgia, and Virginia. And Democrats in the nation's capital are deciding on their pick for mayor. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has the details on some of the key races. Democrats on Capitol Hill hold a slim majority, and Republicans are vying to flip House seats in Virginia. Voters in the state recently elected Republican Governor Youngkin over the state's former Democrat governor. We're going to see in November not just a red wave, but a tsunami. That's Senator Ted Cruz campaigning for Republican candidate Yesley Vega Monday night on the eve of today's primary elections. Vega is running against five other Republicans in Virginia's 7th District. The winner will face current Congresswoman Spanberger, a Democrat, this November. District 2 is another key seat for Republicans. Four candidates are vying for the Republican nomination today. The victor's goal is to flip the seat of Democrat Congresswoman Elaine Luria. And in the nation's capital, voters are deciding whether to keep current Mayor Muriel Bowser in for a third term or if it's time for a change. And she's done a very good job with a very bad situation. Yeah, I'm hoping she gets reelected with considering that her opponents, uh, 
they didn't seem to offer that much of a change, or maybe it was a change we didn't really approve of. One change proposed by Bowser's opponent, Robert White, is police reform. His campaign promises have resonated with some younger voters. I just appreciate that he is interested in allocating resources more towards social services and to other departments that instead of necessarily the police force, you know, I think the police are fantastic. It's just that they're overwhelmed. They can't do every job. They're not a social worker. Uh, so I just cast my ballot for him. Voters in the district are also casting their ballots for their congressional delegate. As for down south, former President Trump's endorsement power is put to the test in Alabama. As Congressman Mo Brooks faces Trump pick Katie Britt in a runoff for the Republican Senate nomination. The winner will face Democrat William Boyd in the midterms to see who will replace retiring Republican Senator Richard Shelby. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And staying with election-related news, the House January 6th committee hearings resumed today. They were focused on accusations that former President Donald Trump pressured battleground state officials to reject vote counts. During the hearing, the panel heard public testimony from Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Raffensperger said his office investigated Trump's allegation that nearly 5,000 dead people voted. He said the number wasn't accurate and that only four dead people voted. And that it was also alleged that over 2,000 felons voted, but the Secretary of State's office found less than 74 still on a felony sentence. President Trump responded to Raffensperger's testimony on Truth Social. Trump described a call he had with the Secretary of State as the perfect phone call. During that call, Trump had discussed election fraud and asked Raffensperger to allow for a full signature audit for Fulton County. At today's hearing, Raffensperger said there were nearly 300 allegations of voter fraud in Georgia during the 2020 election and that all were investigated. And in Texas, the director of the state's Department of Public Safety testified before the Texas Senate today. He said the Uvalde School District police chief chose to put the lives of officers ahead of the lives of children. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. One error, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. The director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Colonel Steve McGraw, testified before the Texas Senate on the police response to the school shooting in Uvalde. And while they waited, the on-scene commander waited for radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. Parents of the victims and residents also blamed the on-scene commander, Pete Arredondo, when they spoke at Monday's school board meeting in Uvalde. I find it shameful that we had almost 100 officers on the scene and I had to leave work and save my own. We were failed by Pete Arredondo. He failed our kids, teachers, parents, and city. And by keeping him on your staff, Y'all are continuing to fail us. How is Ms. Redondo still with the program? Suspend them pending termination. It's an insult to injury. These people are in pain and you allow this to happen. Jose Flores Sr. lost his 10-year-old son in the shooting. I mean, the chief, they still have the chief and they haven't fired him. He's still in, he's still in the office. Something has to be done. Delays in the law enforcement response have been the focus of the investigations. We reached out to the Uvalde School District Police Department for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. And moving from school safety to school policy, there's currently a tussle over what's appropriate student behavior in one school district in Virginia. Fairfax County's school board last week voted to expand punishment for students who maliciously use the wrong pronouns for their transgender classmates or use the classmate's birth name instead of their new name. Children as young as fourth graders can be suspended from school for this behavior and the rule applies right down to kindergarten. But some parents are pushing back. I reached out to the school board and to a parent's advocate for their comments. 
First, let's hear some thoughts from a mom and senior fellow at the Independent Women's Network, Asra Namani. Asra, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Steph. Fairfax County School Board's code of conduct changes are drawing ire from some parents who say it's developmentally inappropriate, potentially traumatizing, and a violation of free speech. You're in that camp too. Could you explain a little more about your concerns? Yeah, you know, I raised a son in Fairfax County Public Schools. I've gone to many PTA meetings, and we have wonderful kids and wonderful families. And, of course, we need to teach kids as is age-appropriate about sexuality and gender. But the issue is that we're talking about elementary school kids that they want to become pronoun police for. The school system has now become the pronoun police. And this idea of Disciplining a child for malicious misgendering is just so age inappropriate for elementary school kids or really anybody, because at the end of the day, free speech in this country means, of course, respecting others, but we cannot police each other's language like that. Advocates of the changes say they're simply a protection against bullying. Do you think that's a fair concern? And what else do you think could be done about it? Well, we have a lot of protections for bullying, and that is so important because every child needs to be protected. But what we have happening right now is an activism, and it is a re-education of children. This is the policy. This is a school board policy that is coming into place. Right here, they've made the red line changes. But how did this happen? Well, I have here this book called Critical Race Theory that a lot of people have heard about. It's an idea of racial indoctrination of children. But what has happened is that there's now a phenomena of queer bait, queer theory. And from queer theory, unfortunately, comes this whole phenomena of books that are coming to the children's level, kindergarten level, like Bye Bye Binary and your pronoun book along with how to they, them. And so what you're doing is putting kids through a re-education camp about these simple issues of pronouns. And now what Fairfax County Public Schools is doing is adding punishment to this. That's no way to teach. And there was reportedly little discussion about this change the night the school board passed it, despite a group of parents protesting outside. It comes amid a growing movement of parents protesting what they see as they're being excluded from key decisions about their children. What do you think parents can do to have more influence over the way their children are treated at school? Well, over the last two years, I mean, parents have been amazing. We've called it the mama bear and papa bear revolution because there is a movement of parents and they are going to the school board meetings. We are learning to script our talks to one minute or two minutes so that we can beat the buzzer. They're running for school board now. You've got to pay attention. Ultimately, unfortunately, education is political. And every decision that is being made about our public school system is by politicians. So you have to enter into the conversations. You have to have a seat at the table. And the best advice I got was from a dad in New York City. And he said, be unapologetic. When you were given this task of being a parent, you know, it didn't come with a rule book. But the one thing that you did know is that you were there to protect your cub. And that is what you should all do unapologetically and, and fearlessly. Some parents also worry that these changes are a distraction from remedying the abysmal academic achievement of kids who are essentially still recovering from pandemic lockdowns. What's your take on this? Oh my gosh, it's just so tragic. You know, there's a fourth grade teacher who was just reported saying that she ended up getting second grade level students when they arrived in her classroom. That was the impact of the pandemic. Across the world, the United Nations and the World Bank have documented, you know, just billions of dollars of potential earnings loss for these children as they grow into our next generation of workers. And so, Yes, we have academic shortfalls. They need to stop this whole phenomenon of political activism in the classroom, teach kids, protect them, protect all of the kids that are, you know, in the in the uh, communities that we have throughout our identity groups. But do not police each other as if, you know, we are now going to create this new cultural revolution in America that starts in the kindergarten. I mean, let kids be kids. 
Asra Normani, Senior Fellow at the Independent Women's Network. Thank you. Thank you so much and stay empowered, everyone. A Fairfax County Public Schools spokesperson did not deny allegations that the new rule changes compel speech, but they did say that their code of conduct ensures all students feel welcome and safe in their learning environment, and that no student should have to face persistent and deliberate bullying or harassment at school. And over in Maine, the Supreme Court has struck down a state law that excludes families from a tuition assistance program if they choose to send their children to religious schools. Now, some students attending private religious schools in the state will qualify for taxpayer-funded tuition aid. Here are the details. The Supreme Court ruled that if a state uses taxpayer money to pay for students attending non-religious private schools, it must also use taxpayer money to pay for students attending religious private schools. Under Maine's school system, the state pays for the tuition of some students attending private schools. This is to deal with the lack of public schools in many rural districts but the policy only applies to private non-religious schools. Students attending private religious schools still have to pay out of pocket. Several parents in Maine filed a lawsuit challenging the policy. They argued that not allowing families to access public funding for schools based on religious values violates First Amendment rights. The Supreme Court agreed, saying that excluding religious schools from the policy is not only unconstitutional, but also hostile to religion. The three liberal justices dissented. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote that the ruling dismantles the wall of separation between church and state. The Supreme Court decision will likely have implications on a national level. Currently, 37 states ban the direct or indirect use of taxpayer money in religious schools. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And staying on the topic of religious schools, church leaders have banned a middle school in Massachusetts from calling itself Catholic. That's because the school insists on flying the LGBT pride flag and the Black Lives Matter flag. A decree issued by the Bishop of the Diocese of Worcester says flying the LGBT and BLM flags is inconsistent with Catholic teachings. Nativity School in Worcester, Massachusetts is now prohibited from hosting mass and sacraments on its campus. It also can't identify itself as a Catholic school. The school is an all-boys school from grade 5 to 8. It has been flying the LGBT and BLM flags since early 2021. The school leaders have refused to take down the flags, despite church leaders telling them to. The bishop says the flying of these flags in front of a Catholic school sends a mixed, confusing, and scandalous message to the public about the church's stance on these important moral and social issues. And coming up, investor Mark Cuban's online pharmacy could save Medicare billions of dollars every year, according to Harvard researchers. They say Medicare is paying way too much for prescription drugs. And in California, Amazon is calling on customers in sm a small rural town to accept their packages from drones. NTD's Arlene Richards finds out whether these deliveries could violate residents' privacy rights. That and more here on NTD News. every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. One way the White House wants to fight inflation is to bring down drug prices. And a new company from billionaire investor Mark Cuban is already doing that. 
A new Harvard study says if the government buys from his firm instead, it could save Medicare billions of dollars. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has the details. Medicare could be saving billions of dollars if it bought drugs from the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company, according to Harvard researchers. The company cuts out the middlemen to cut costs on generic drugs. For example, a 30-count supply of 400-milligram imatinib would cost $39 at Cost Plus drugs, but $9,600 at other pharmacies. It's a nice idea, but they've got a long way to go before you tell beneficiaries and, uh, and uh, who are elderly or disabled that this is going to be where they're going to get their drugs. Doug Badger is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He previously served as special assistant to George W. Bush on the National Economic Council, where he advised him on health-related matters. Badger says, This company may offer savings for some patients on select drugs. Medicare prescription drug plans have to cover thousands of drugs in every, uh, every therapeutic category, brand name and generic. The study found that Medicare could have saved up to $3.6 billion in 2020 if it purchased 77 generic drugs at Cuban's company. The way drugs are normally priced is both complicated and secretive, a big reason they're so expensive is the middlemen. These are often billion-dollar companies that get in the middle of the patient who needs the medicine and the companies that are making the generic drugs. And they make a lot of profit off the margin. Rosemary Gibson is a senior advisor at the Hastings Center, a bioethics think tank. She's also the author of China Rx, a book on Chinese ingredients being inside drugs consumed by Americans. Gibson says, Organizations such as pharmacy benefit managers and group purchasing organizations, and they'll do the contracting, they will arrange for some distribution costs, which are real costs, but the amount that they charge is exorbitant. Medicare spent around $115.6 billion on prescription drugs last year, around a third of total drug purchases in the U.S. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And now to another billionaire's company, Amazon, which announced its plans to start a drone delivery program in Lockford, California but residents expressed concerns about privacy. An aviation expert said privacy is a big challenge because the laws have not caught up with drone technology. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Amazon plans to start a drone delivery service in Lockford, California, but first it has to wait for FAA approval. Meanwhile, the company is reaching out to residents of the small town to see who wants to give it a try. I asked aviation professor Ryan Wallace if residents should be concerned about their privacy, and he says it's too early to know for sure. We we're really not understanding exactly what the privacy implications could be. Now, I do suspect that there will be implications related to something very similar to the way we use cookies online, where when you order a package online, you're giving up some of your personal information, and very much in the same light, that's likely to occur when you order something via drone. California does have drone laws that prohibit taking photos of people and private property, but those laws don't address drones collecting data. Wallace said that could be a problem. Well, that's a, a big challenge because at this point in time, the laws have not caught up with the technology. We still don't totally understand the other types of data collection and how that might implicate privacy. Amazon told the Washington Post its drones don't capture images while flying and they won't use delivery data for any other purposes. According to Wallace, businesses are given the benefit of the doubt when it comes to flying drones. Business is presumed to use an unmanned aircraft for the purpose of, of furthering that business, whereas we don't know exactly what the purpose of the flight for a hobbyist or a recreational operator is. NTD reached out to Amazon for comment but didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And in travel, AAA is predicting a record number of D July 4th drivers despite gas prices hitting a record earlier this month. The group predicts 42 million Americans, more than ever before, will take a road trip of 50 miles or more. The national average per gallon on Monday stood at $4.98. That's just pennies off the high of $5.02 reached a week earlier. But AAA says travel demand is not tapering off, despite the higher expenses. All the while, fewer Americans will be flying to their destinations due to spikes in airfare, 
a drop of only about 7%. The cost for a plane ticket is reportedly about 14% more expensive than it was last year. And a Texas woman has pleaded guilty to 26 counts of voter fraud last week. The fraud took place during a local water, bar, water board election in 2018. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. According to the Texas Attorney General's Office, 36-year-old Monica Mendez of Port Lavaca, Texas, ran a vote harvesting operation on behalf of a subsidized housing corporation in order to influence the outcome of a utility board election in Bloomington of Victoria County, Texas. Mendez pleaded guilty to three counts of illegal voting, eight counts of election fraud, seven counts of assisting a voter to submit a ballot by mail, and eight counts of unlawful possession of a mail ballot. She was sentenced to five years of deferred adjudication probation by a Victoria County District judge. Mendez was working as a volunteer deputy registrar voter during a 2018 water board election, assisting residents to register to vote. Mendez was signing both applications to register to vote and applications to vote by mail. After around 275 of the 2,500 people who registered to vote in the election used the same mailing address associated with a local housing nonprofit called ALMS, the Attorney General's office took notice. Mendez was charged with 26 counts of voter fraud in April 2021 and arrested in June that year by the Texas AG's Election Fraud Unit. She was indicted in July by a grand jury in the County of Victoria. Since 2015, the Texas Attorney General has successfully prosecuted 534 election fraud offenses against 155 individuals, according to their website. 43 individuals in Texas have a prosecution pending. The AG is conducting 386 open voter fraud investigations. Currently, charges for election fraud in Texas range from misdemeanor offenses up to felonies subject to state jail time. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, billionaire Elon Musk is one step closer to buying Twitter. The company's board approves his buyout offer, urging shareholders to do the same. And in the NFL, a superstar is retiring, but this time it's not Tom Brady. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the sum of the career highlights of Rob Gronkowski as he exits the game. That and more when we come back. Now some good news for Elon Musk. He's one step closer to buying Twitter. Today, the company's board of directors unanimously approved his $44 billion buyout offer. That's according to an SEC filing. It detailed a letter to investors. In it, Twitter's board recommended that Twitter stockholders vote to approve a merger agreement with Musk. If the deal closes now, Twitter investors stand to pocket a profit of around $15 for each share they own. Doubts about the deal swirled after Musk threatened to cancel it over fake accounts. He said he wants proof that less than 5% of Twitter's daily users are spam bots. Today at an event, he said again that he is still waiting for an answer on that. The filing didn't say anything about it. And over to transportation, the ever-so-popular Uber Pool is back. That's where riders get a reduced fare for sharing their car ride with other passengers. That's after a two-year hiatus because of the pandemic. NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. Uber Pool, an option to share your car ride with strangers for a discount, is back. When it was available prior to the pandemic, I used to take it, especially to go to the gym early in the morning. Never was a fan of it. Drivers in New York City don't like it. The service is rebranded as UberX Share and will be available in nine cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Audrey Dennis is a visionary in the transportation industry, thinking 10 years into the future as strategist at Cubic Transportation Systems. Reintroducing pool or the shared services helps to increase margin. Dennis says it's a no-brainer for Uber to bring the shared ride services back. It's not a half and half between the two riders that might be getting into the car. 
Instead, they're going to pay in accordance with the origin and the destination so that Uber is ultimately able to make a little bit more margin from that ride. Uber says customers will get a discounted fare simply for selecting the shared ride option. And if a co-rider does end up joining for the trip, they can get up to an additional 20% off. Uber promises the shared rides will arrive no more than eight minutes later compared to a private Uber ride. But Uber driver Raul Rivera is not a fan. They want to turn our vehicles into a bus or to a train where we pick up people constantly, multiple times, and dropping them off and picking them up and dropping them off. Rivera shares his frustrations as an Uber pool driver in the past. First customer that you pick up has, let's say, two or three bags of luggage. So you pick them up. But then you pick up the second passenger, and they have two or three bags of luggage, and it all doesn't fit. So Uber's never really addressed that one thing. and. Uber plans to expand the shared ride services to more cities this summer. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And in California, according to state wildlife officials, two fish hatcheries in the state are battling a bacterial outbreak. They said nearly 350,000 fish must now be euthanized. NTD's David Lamb reports. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife say that nearly 350,000 infected trout must be humanely euthanized. The Wildlife Department announced on Monday that two trout hatcheries in the Eastern Sierra are continuing to fight an outbreak of Lactococcus petari, which is a naturally occurring bacteria that sickens fish. Symptoms can include bulging eyes and lethargic swimming. The current outbreak was first detected in April and the rainbow trout are showing signs of disease. The affected facilities, Black Rock and Fish Springs hatcheries usually provide fish for stocking waterways. Scientists believe that birds may have brought the bacteria to the hatcheries. To replace the fish for fishermen, the department is working with an external vendor to provide catchable rainbow trout as early as July. Other hatcheries across the state are helping by providing and stocking fish in priority waters. The department plans to vaccinate the remaining fish at the facilities to combat the outbreak. The agency also said it is rare and unlikely to transmit the bacteria to people, but they caution fishermen to cook fish to at least 145 degrees. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Tampa Bay won Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Finals last night 6-2, but not without a little controversy. Lightning winger Nikita Kucherov left the game in the third period after what his teammate called a dangerous play by Colorado defenseman Devon Taves. Kucherov was handling the puck when Taves stuck his stick into Kucherov's back and then pushed him into the boards as Kucherov fell awkwardly to a knee. Taves received a minor penalty on the play. Kucherov made one more appearance in the ice before leaving to the trainer's room. His status for Game 4 is uncertain, although head coach John Cooper is optimistic he'll play. Kucherov leaves the team in postseason scoring with 26 points in 20 games. Meanwhile, teammate Victor Hedman called it a dangerous play, though the NHL has opted not to discipline Taves. Game 4 will be Wednesday night in Tampa Bay, with the Lightning trailing the Avalanche two games to one. In golf, ESPN is reporting that four-time major winner Brooks Kepka has left the PGA Tour in favor of the Live Golf League. The 32-year-old is one of the highest-profile players to do so, along with Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson. The Saudi-backed tour, with golf legend Greg Norman fronting it, has now snagged eight of the top 50 players in the world. Kepka has twice won the U.S. Open and PGA Championships and spent 47 winks as a top-ranked player in the world. Injuries have hampered his play recently, though. Kepka's withdrawal was first announced by the Telegraph of London. Live Golf has not announced his addition, but have confirmed another golfer. 20th-ranked Abraham Anser has come aboard as well. Live Golf's first U.S. event is scheduled to kick off on June 30th at Pumpkin Ridge in Portland, Oregon. In tennis news, Wimbledon has announced the seeding for the men's and women's draws and favorites Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal seated first and second respectively, meaning they could meet in the finals. The placing is in contrast to the French Open, where the two, who won 42 Grand Slams between them, had their showdown in the quarters instead. The seeds normally go by rankings, but with Wimbledon banning Russian players, 
top-ranked Daniel Medvedev won't be there, and neither will second-ranked Alexander Zverev, who tore ligaments in his ankle at the French Open. Nadal and Djokovic are no strangers to each other, having gone head-to-head -head a record 59 times, with Djokovic maintaining a slim 30-29 advantage. And finally, in the NFL, Tampa Bay tight end Rob Gronkowski is retiring the second time. Gronkowski first retired from the New England Patriots after the 2018 season, but came back a year later with Tampa Bay to reunite with former quarterback Tom Brady, and he ended up winning his fourth Super Bowl. If this is it, the four-time All-Pro had more 100-yard games than any tight end in NFL history. His agent, Drew Rosenhaus, however, said he wouldn't be surprised if Gronk was coaxed out of retirement again by Tom Brady. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Lord Patton, who led the last British government in Hong Kong, says what's happening now in the territory is heartbreaking, but that the Chinese regime is past its peak. And the largest rail strike for a generation has caused severe disruptions in London. Many journeys took several hours longer than usual, and more disruptions are expected every day this week. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. As we approach 25 years since Hong Kong was handed back to China, the last British governor of Hong Kong said the situation there is heartbreaking. He says the world is dealing with what he calls a post-peak China as he launched his new book, The Hong Kong Diaries. NTD's Jane Wuerl was at the book launch and has more for us. In 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to China under what was meant to be one country, two systems an agreement to preserve Hong Kong's civil liberties for 50 years. Lord Chris Patton led the last British government in Hong Kong and said it's distressing to see what's happening to Hong Kongers today. It's pretty heartbreaking when you see what's happened to those people who, were, who identify themselves as Hong Kong Chinese, Hong Kongers, but I'm proud of the fact that Hong Kong has reverted to Chinese sovereignty the occupied territory, and I just find it intensely difficult. But he says he does have hope that Hong Kong will become a great city again. He spoke as he launched his new book, The Hong Kong Diaries. It's based on a diary he kept while he was the governor of Hong Kong, which details his day-to-day -day life running Hong Kong as a British colony and the path to the handover. He had some advice for the incoming leader of Hong Kong, John Lee, who was the sole candidate for the latest chief executive election in which the vast majority of Hong Kongers weren't allowed to vote. My one piece of advice to Mr Lee would be to encourage his wife and children to keep their British passports. MPs have been critical of Beijing's increasing authoritarian control of Hong Kong. Lord Patton says the future of the city's economic prosperity depends on the rule of law. It becomes more difficult if a lot of your best people are leaving and if you're starting to lose um, the relationship between, um, between uh, um, freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry um, and uh, the management of the economy. I think that there is a close relationship between the rule of law and economic success. He hopes his book will get more people talking about what Hong Kong represents to the free world. Jane Wuerl, NTD News, London. And more on the Chinese Communist Party. A U.S. expert has found that the Chinese Communist Party is collecting data on Americans in a brand new way, through their coffee machines. Let's take a look. A recent report suggests that the Chinese Communist Party is obtaining data via smart coffee machines made in China. 
Author Christopher Balding published his research through New Kite Data Labs. He warned that such tactics can be used to spy on U.S. consumers. According to his report, these machines collect data on a variety of subjects, including drink production, location, payment information, and other data. In commercial environments like hotels, they can even access route information and payment methods. Some of the coffee machines are made by the Calorum firm, based in China's Jiangsu province. The report noted the manufacturer provides no information on data storage or privacy. The company has been selling models widely throughout the United States and Europe. The report concluded, quote, while we cannot say this company is collecting data on non-Chinese users, all evidence indicates their machines can and do collect data on users outside of mainland China and store the data in China. Balding added that he won't disclose how he obtained the information. That's because he doesn't want the Chinese Communist Party or CCP to prevent him from learning more about their data collection efforts against Americans and others. Cybersecurity experts have long cautioned about similar threats posed by Chinese apps like TikTok. Black Ops Partners CEO Casey Fleming commented that the Communist Party of China is collecting vast amounts of data. It may not be used against you today, but this information might be used against you, your company, or your country in the future. And over in Japan, a court is upholding the country's ban on same-sex marriage. This comes after three same-sex couples filed a lawsuit against the local government claiming their right to marriage had been violated. The Osaka District Court ruled Monday that the country's ban on same-sex marriage does not violate the Constitution. The court said that freedom of marriage in the 1947 Constitution only means marriage between a man and a woman and does not include those of the same sex. The judge said marriage for heterosexual couples is a system established by society to protect a relationship between men and women who bear and raise children. The plaintiffs sought around $7,000 in compensation from the government for alleged discriminations they face. The court rejected their demand. The plaintiffs say they will appeal. And over in Israel, citizens will soon have a new government and a new prime minister. The Israeli Prime Minister is dissolving the parliament and calling for a new election. Here are the details. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett announced on Monday that he is going to dissolve the Israeli parliament and call a new election. This is after he failed to sustain his ruling coalition, which includes eight political parties from across the political spectrum. My friend, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid and I decided to work together to dissolve the Knesset and to set to hold elections at an agreed time at the same time transferring the power in an orderly manner and ensuring the national interests of the state of Israel. Even during the transition period, the state continues. Israeli lawmakers will vote to dissolve parliament next week. After that, the country's foreign minister, Yair Lapid, will serve as interim prime minister until new elections can be held. Lapid currently heads the largest party in the coalition. Even if we're going to elections in a few months, our challenges as a state cannot wait. We must address the high cost of living, manage the struggle against Iran, Hamas and Hezbollah, and face the forces that threaten to make Israel an undemocratic state. The parliamentary election is likely to take place sometime this fall. It will be the country's fifth election in three years. Former Prime Minister and current position leader Benjamin Netanyahu vowed a comeback following the announcement on Monday. My friends and I will form a broad national government headed by the Likud, a government that will take care of you, all the citizens of Israel, without exception, a government that will lower taxes, that will lower prices, and will lead Israel to tremendous achievements, including expanding the circle of peace as we have already done. Bennett formed the eight-party coalition in June 2021 after four successive inconclusive elections. But the coalition lost its majority earlier this year and has faced rebellions from different lawmakers in recent weeks. President Biden is scheduled to visit Israel next month. And in the UK, the largest rail strike for a generation has caused severe disruptions, with more cancellations expected this week. Just a fifth of trains ran and half of all lines were closed today. Many passengers' journeys took several hours longer than normal, while those who chose to travel by car instead were greeted by a surge in traffic. NTD's Malcolm Hudson spoke to troubled passengers to hear their thoughts. Millions of people are suffering disruption from rail strikes, with 80% of trains cancelled and a major spike in road congestion. The strikes follow unsuccessful work and pay negotiations between rail bosses and union leaders. 
Speaking to BBC Breakfast on Tuesday, Transport Secretary Grant Schapp said the calls to get him involved in negotiations are a stunt. The strikes uh, are over. Allegedly, pay, because the unions told their members there wouldn't be a pay rise, which was never true, uh, because the pay freeze of coronavirus was coming to an end, uh, and compulsory job cuts, where in fact uh, people have been coming forward through the voluntary redundancy uh, scheme. So again, uh, a scare by the union. So I think they've called these strikes under false pretenses. I went to Victoria Station in London to speak to passengers. Many faced long delays and added expenses. Well, usually it would take about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, and it's going to take us about three hours now. I've got to take the coach home today instead of the train, so that's back to sort of Dorset way. Yeah, so that's an extra sort of hour or so, which I don't really want to be doing, and I've had to buy the ticket extra as well, so, you know, I'd just rather not, <laughs> to be honest. Several people declined interviews because they were rushing between buses, taxis and the few remaining trains. Union leaders have said they have a mandate for six months of industrial action, meaning there could be strikes all the way through to Christmas. Um, it sounds quite militant. I, I expect that they have every intention of going ahead with those strikes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't see that, any, that it's going to change public opinion dramatically in, in their favour. Uh, strikes just mess everything up. People are going to have bad Christmases, families not seeing each other, friends not seeing each other. Again, for the economy, it's going to be bad. And socially, it'll be bad as well. It's horrible. Edward Beaton runs a software company. He said the strikes have meant none of his staff have been able to get to work. It's just crazy. It's crazy what they're doing. Oh, and it's not Tuesday and Thursday, is it? Because I had the same problem yesterday, I've got the same problem today, I'll have the same problem tomorrow because it's massively disrupted, I've got the same problem on Thursday because there's strikes, and I've got the same problem on Friday because it's still disrupted. So it's not two days, it's a week. A week. It's a disaster. Beaton said that faced with the prospect of strikes through Christmas, he may consider leaving the country. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Up next, from living in a homeless shelter to graduating valedictorian, a young man used a mindset of kindness and perseverance to change his life. Stay tuned for more after this short break. After losing his mother to leukemia, a six-year-old boy and his family also lost their home. But after two years being in a homeless shelter, he managed to beat the odds and began to turn the situation around. Let's find out how. Griffin Furlong's childhood was far from ordinary. His mom was diagnosed with cancer when she was five months pregnant with him. He was only six when he found out at school that she passed away. Brokenhearted, Griffin, his older brother, Sean, and their father went through a lot of hardship over the next few years. We were defeated and it didn't help that our car broke down weeks later. And, you know, all of these events started just unraveling. We couldn't afford rent anymore. And we ended up living in a homeless shelter for two years. The family was even on the verge of losing their place in the shelter and being left on the streets as the father was battling depression and could not get a job. I just remember just not having a place to go. And, um, you know, pe um, some volunteers at, uh, I forget what organization, were going to set us up with a tent. But this all changed when their grandmother from Florida decided to take them in. For 12 hours, she drove from Jacksonville to Kentucky to pick them up with only the clothes on their backs. So that was like a big turning point for us to finally have a place, a place to stay. She helped us rent a, um, just a small house down here in Jacksonville. And she gave them a new life. She's our angel. This newfound stability encouraged the boys to get back on their feet. I was like, well, I'm not in the shelter anymore. I have my family with me. You know, this, this is a complete, complete change of scenery. So let me, let me see what I can do. And Griffin and Sean made a pact to change their lives through education, and that mindset is still guiding their actions. I would wake up super early for school. I'd, I'd ride my bike to school, and I would just think about, you know, how, how much work can I get done today? Like, what can I learn today? Soon, the enthusiasm for learning led to Griffin making straight A's. His dad and brother noticed that he was gifted and were encouraging him to aim for college. In the classroom, Griffin was 
very dedicated. He was always interested in what he could do better. Um, even if he received an A on an assignment. Ironically, a few months before high school graduation, life decided to test Griffin again. His father lost his job and they found themselves homeless a second time. My heart dropped because it was months before graduation and you know I had another big challenge in front of me and I had to finish school strong and two weeks after I went homeless, I was announced valedictorian. He did not tell a soul at school, and everyone was shocked to find out when he gave his valedictorian speech. You know, a lot of people in general think that homelessness looks a specific way. And to look at Griffin and the way he conducted himself, um, no one would have thought him to fit into their stereotype. His situation sparked the interest of the media, and this helped him to get a scholarship, go to college, and help his father. Driven by his passion to solve problems, he chose to study engineering at university. But of course, not without challenges. One of the lessons learned is about failure and how to deal with it. I would always just say, be true to yourself. You're going to have obstacles, but it's all about how you overcome that obstacle. And that's why he's putting together his own book. I started outlining uh, basically, you know, principles that, that transcend beyond the classroom, like lessons learned, um, you know, from going through school, seeing what I've seen in the homeless shelters, everything that I've gathered and observed of the world. Um, I, I, I put that on, on paper and um, it's aimed with the student in mind. Because he believes that a mindset of kindness and perseverance can change lives. But he wants to use kind of his story and our story to um, to make a difference because there's a lot of people that go through kind of kind of what we went single parent um, you know depression not really having a whole lot of control over your situation but there is a way out now he's filled with appreciation and gratitude what I went through in my past really helps me ground myself I, I always go back to the shelter and just always say hey things could be worse things could be so much worse I'm so blessed to have the food in my fridge. I'm so blessed to just even be here. A precious life and what sounds like many precious lessons learned. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.